Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Thanks for being with us. It's been a few weeks since our last interview, just a super, super busy summer here between a few big closings and packaging some great assets for post-Labor Day launches. We are finally back here in the studio in late August, and it's good to be back. Yeah. Looking out the window here, it's August 25th. It's a rainy Friday, so it kind of helps when you're in the office on a Friday afternoon in the summer. It's raining. Not a golf day. But it's a good reminder, if you're going to take time off in this business, don't wait till the last two weeks of August. We always end up in packaging mode, pedal to the metal, getting ready for when people are back at the desk post-Labor Day. So it's been a few weeks since we've released an interview, and we actually love when we start getting pinged by people saying, hey, when are you going to come out with something next? And this one is worth the wait. We had a great time with Bill Cummings, founder of Cummings Properties, and perhaps more importantly, founder along with his wife, Joyce, of the Cummings Foundation, which is one of the most awe-inspiring charities of its kind in the world. Yeah, I think most commercial real estate practitioners, or many anyways, particularly those in investment sales and and the capital market space, don't know as much about Bill and Joyce as they should. He's built an incredible empire, but more importantly, has done so, so much good for so many people in the region, really in the world. We hear a lot about that today, in addition to the real estate empire that he's built. Yeah, it's a classic American success story. An entrepreneurial journey, which you'll hear about, has led to a portfolio of over 11 million square feet, all owned debt-free. And what I love about this is that it started, as many of these conversations do and many of these stories do, with a young person with the entrepreneurial bug. You'll hear about it. Bill grew up in post-depression, blue-collar household. This started with one building and was built from there. And he's a wonderful guy. And Tommy sort of noted this. We're in the investment sales side of the business. We are not in Bill Cummings' office every day. He doesn't really sell, and he does not buy a lot of marketed assets. He's a deep value buyer, and he's a super long-term holder. But he's a great example of one of those long-leverage, keep-it-simple long-term holders who's built an incredible portfolio. I mean, 11 million square feet with no debt is pretty unique. Yeah, we learned a ton here. I, in particular, hadn't had much exposure to the Cummings organization And again, we learned a lot, and he's really an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. I mean, we hear his beginnings selling Kool-Aid and selling Christmas trees. He just has so many fascinating stories. It's just a great American success story. So hope you enjoy. Subscribe, post, send us comments, send us questions. We'd love to hear from you. We'll also put a link in the show notes for Bill's book, Starting Small and Making It Big, which is a must-read. I know Everybody at Newmark has a copy. So please give it a listen, download, share, follow, and we really appreciate it. There's certain things we get to pick up from being in the room with these people that you wouldn't see listening to it. But one moment that stuck with me after we had our conversation with Bill is he's talking about meeting his wife, Joyce, who he's now been married to for 53 years. They have a happy family and healthy children and grandchildren. And we talked about meeting his wife. And while he describes that, he was choked up and his eyes were welling up with tears. And here's a guy who he won't say it, but weekend, a billionaire real estate investor, incredible philanthropist. And we're sitting there talking mostly about real estate. And when it gets to the point where he's talking about his wife, Bill's in his mid eighties now, he almost had to take a moment. He was so choked up about that. That was cool. So we're excited for you to listen to this. And this is the whole point of this interview series is to feature real estate stories that you might not hear otherwise. And it's been a pleasure for us to do these. This is a great example of really a special treat for us. So you'll enjoy it. We're in touch with all of you, but but we want to remind folks, our platform, both on the capital markets and leasing side, continues to be incredibly active in, in a growth mode around the country. We appreciate a lot of the calls we've been getting from clients, new and old, who have been listening to this interview series, getting something out of it, And that's led to a lot of interesting conversations about what's going on in today's market. And there's a lot of green shoots today. You know, there's a lot of good things getting done. And Tommy, your team on the multifamily side has been incredibly busy. Yeah, we've been really busy. Got a large portfolio, 1,700 plus units done for Harbor Group this month. One of the biggest multifamily sales really in the country this year. So we were excited about that. Introduced Bridge Investment Group to the market on the multifamily side, who is just an awesome, awesome counterparty. And we're excited to have brought them here. So it's one of many things we're working on, as Mike alluded to. We're thrilled to be busy. I think we're all grateful that we are real estate practitioners in this market, in this region, and in greater Boston. 
that's become quite evident these days. And even with things like treasuries running over the past few weeks, we remain active, optimistic, and very encouraged with what we're seeing and hearing out there. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this interview with Bill Cummings, and we'll talk to you soon. Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we are really overjoyed to be with Bill Cummings, founder of Cummings Properties and founder of the Cummings Foundation, and someone who is an icon in our minds. We're excited to be in the office here, and we appreciate you having us in, Bill. So we're going to start this discussion how we usually like to, which is really going back to the beginning, Bill. You've built an amazing organization here on the real estate side, but your philanthropic endeavors have been truly eye-opening to a lot of people that are local and that have been following your story. Cummings Properties currently manages over 11 million square feet across 11 communities. We passed a 50-year milestone for Cummings Properties recently in the past few years, and one of the most respected vertically integrated organizations of its kind. So Bill, if we can go back in the beginning, we would love to hear about your upbringing, how you were raised, where you grew up, and then we'll make our way through college and get to the real estate game. It's an awfully long way to have to go back, though, I'll tell you. <laughs> Actually, I was born in Somerville Hospital in 1937. I grew up, however, all of my life I can remember in Medford and had an uneventful childhood. Some of the things that I write about in my book, Starting Small, go back that far. Talk about my doing things like bringing cans of soda to the people who were be rebuilding the Fells Way at that time. I lived right at the corner of Salem Street and the Fells Way in Medford, and I'd buy it for a nickel and sell it for a dime even back then. And those nickels added up. I had more money in my pocket at age six than any of my friends did. I know that, and I did it one summer for, oh, a month and a half maybe. And so that was my business start. It's a good margin from an early age. Margin is important, as you know. It's something that continued in much the same ratio as I got to junior high school. I started selling ice cream off my bicycle. And then I got a bigger box and got a bigger box still on the front of my bicycle. And I would go down every morning in the summertime and down to Somerville and pick up ice cream. And I convinced the people at the Ford Motor Company, where Assembly Mall is now, my dad said I could come in here and I could see him after work. Where does he, where he works over in the office? He's vice president or something. No joke. That's exactly how I went. And the guy always said, oh, hi, Billy. How are you doing? And I would go in and sell chocolate-covered ice creams and ice cream sandwiches and Sunday cups to the workers inside the gate when they were coming out at the end of the day, especially. Or I'd go along the front side on Middlesex Avenue, I think it is down there, pass it through the windows to them either way. But again, buy it for a nickel at Hager's Ice Cream down in Somerville on Mystic Avenue and ride back empty at the end of the day with my money in my pocket and did very well. My friends didn't have Little League and so forth in those days. They'd be over at the local park maybe, but I got to like having my little jobs. So I say I invented those jobs. So you had the entrepreneurial bug from an early age. Just to give people an idea of what life was like in that era, this is sort of post-depression. Your family was a working class family. I read that your father was, in the early days, he was painting ships in the Four River Shipyard, which we grew up in Situate. And there's a lot of families that had those roots and a lot of men and women that were working hard at that era, but it was a difficult time in this country. It was a very difficult time. It was very much post-depression years, born in 37. So my earliest memories was always a question of how do we save a few pennies here, a few pennies there. And we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and my sister and I shared the bedroom. My parents slept in the living room, and I think rent was about $12 a month, something like that. And the big thing was make sure we always had enough money for the rent. And second was food, and we always had enough money for food. I was never hungry. I was never unhappy. I actually talked today with my very first friend. Nothing to do with this broadcast, but coincidentally, I talked with a friend that I had when I was five and he was four and a half. We lived in a neighboring apartment houses with a big fence between us and eventually built a ladder up over the fence so we could go back and forth easily. The memories are good. My thing was always do a little business. I liked it. What a gift that you're still in touch with a buddy from when you were that age. That's yeah. pretty unique. Our father's from Somerville. He grew up in Somerville, but those early friendships are still some of his best to this day. And it's really nice to hear. So you sold ice cream, you sold soda, you were selling ice cream Sundays to the Ford employees. 
you did a few more things before you went to Tufts, and we want to get into Tufts and your college days. But one of the things was flipping boats. You worked on boats with your father, and you sold them. As Citroën guys, we'd love to hear just a minute about that business and what that was like, because that was something that certainly caught our eye. That was all about getting the Boston Globe early. It meant going down to City Square, sometimes on Saturday afternoon, getting the Globe and reading the for sale ads. And there were a couple of pages in those days before you guys would even remember it, but where there would be ads for used boats for sale. And the thing that I always wanted was a boat motor and trailer, that combination. And you could get a 12-foot boat and a little trailer and an outboard motor. And if I was lucky, I'd find one for $350, $400, the whole package. And I could get six or $700 for it real easily. One time, I even bought something out of the paper on Saturday night and had an ad running in the paper on Sunday morning for another boat. And I sold them both on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. It takes some conviction to go after arbitrage at that age. Those are not small dollars at that time either. You knew what you could create and add some value and then move on and pour the proceeds into the next boat, I'm sure. I had lots of jobs like that. I had them through high school. I decided at some point that I wasn't going to play sports and didn't at all. I used to have long conversations with one of the teachers who knew that I could play a little bit of ball, but wanted me to play. And I said, I was not going to do that. I didn't want to go to college. I graduated from Midford High School and was fortunate to have a guidance instructor there, a guidance counselor, who just sat me down one time. He said, it was almost a question of pushing me in the chair in a nice way. I'm going to talk to you today. I just really want to talk to you. And he did. And I applied to Tufts and I got in. Much easier to get into Tufts then than it was now. Yeah, there's a great story in the book, which we'll talk about in the book in the intro at more length, but starting small and making it big, an entrepreneur's journey to billion-dollar philanthropist. We'll share with many of our listeners have read the book and will read the book after this if they haven't yet. But there's so many great stories in there. And I think you were very direct in sharing some of the serendipitous moments in your life. One that I loved was that you had accompanied a buddy to the Tufts interview. He was having an interview at Tufts. You happened to be there. And because you were there, one of the admissions guys said, hey, why don't you come on in? What are you thinking about? And you made the interview happen. It was actually Grant Curtis, who later, he was an admissions officer at the time I got there, and he was vice president of admissions and later, and was there for many, several decades, I think. And we went in, and I had applied to Tufts, but I didn't get invited to come up. I drove my buddy up, and he said, well, let me just see if I can find your application. And I was very lucky that he didn't see it all, probably. In my junior year, I had a D in algebra, in second year algebra, and that wouldn't have been a good sign at all. I happened to get an A in it the next year, and that's what he was looking at. He was looking at my senior year, and I took it over again. It's easy to get an A the second round, right? We talked for at least 45 minutes and maybe an hour, and just had a nice, great conversation. And he concluded and said, I'd like to have you, you come. You've got to take your SATs, though. You have to take these tests. I had taken the aptitude test, and I did well on that, but I hadn't taken any of the achievement tests, and I wouldn't have done well on those, but I didn't have much time left. I said, I'll take them. The day I took them, sometime toward the end of March, I got home, the acceptance letter was there. Wow. Wow. What a story. That's awesome. We have a similar one. Our grandfather, Dr. Harold Riley, attended Tufts a few years before you did, and he is our mother's father. It was a case of mistaken identity. They accepted the wrong Harold Riley. But when they figured it out all these months later, he was number one in the class. And they said, well, you're number one in the class, so I guess we're not going to kick you out. And so he finished and he became a great dentist and had a great life. But those old tough stories are funny. It doesn't happen like that anymore. He owes it to some random Harold Riley in Columbus, Ohio, or something that got rejected from Tufts. But I think small moments like that can change someone's life. And you went on, I think, with or without Tufts, you certainly had this entrepreneurial gene, and that was something you were going to follow. And I think during your school years, you were finding different ways to make money. Coming out of Tufts, what was your thought process? What were you planning on from a career standpoint? And you had a few people that nudged you in the right direction. All the time that I was in school, I was looking forward to being in my own business. I had no idea what that would be, not the foggiest idea. For some reason or other, I did apply to one school coming out and going back to this guidance counselor at Medford High School. You don't want to take business courses. Now you take them in graduate school. 
So you can go someplace like Harvard Business School. So I applied at Harvard Business School somewhat naively because my grades at Tufts were not like your grandfather's grades. There's no question as to who was not number one. I did okay. I passed everything, but I was a C average and happy to be there because I was always still working. I worked full time. I could brag and say I paid my own way through Tufts, and I did. Tuition then was $310 a semester. It was still a real number back then. I mean, this is a while back. Think how much of a real number it was then, though. That was 1% of what it is today. It's $30,000 basic tuition for a semester today, and I was paying three ten. So it's pretty easy. But again, I was still working. I had lots of extracurricular activities. I was far more involved in extracurricular than doing homework. I was not going to do that. There was a great story in the book about selling Christmas trees with a Tufts buddy of yours. And I loved it. One of the things you mentioned was you'd leased out this parking lot. And you can tell the story, but the way that one of you would stay overnight in a sleeping bag in a little hut to guard the trees, I loved. It wasn't exactly a hut. It was a little a single office in the middle of a one-acre parking lot next to what used to be Carol's Diner, which is, you're not old enough to know Carol's Diner. It was right opposite where the police and fire headquarters is today. And there was a 20 by 20, 15 by 15, something like that, wide building. And we had plenty of room to have a couple of bunks in there or a couple of sleeping bags on cots, I guess, is what we did. And we were going to safeguard the investment so one of us would sort of stay awake and sort of look out the window and never had any problems that way or anything. But So from sodas and ice cream to Christmas trees, and then you're on your way out of Tufts, you're graduating, and this sort of sales role presented itself. How did you end up getting into VIX? Do you remember the name Jack Kerouac? Oh, of yeah. course. Remember his book was On the Road. On the Road. Mm-hmm. That was you for many years. Yeah. Jack Kerouac had that job on the road with Vix, the same job that I applied for when I graduated. And he wrote about it in On the Road. And they say, they say, that's a pretty open statement, but it's widely believed in some circles that he wrote that book over a weekend, high the whole time on Vix inhalers. The inhalers that you'd get then for 29 cents, I think they were. He could have all he wanted. He'd have a trunk full of them, crack them open, mash them up, put them in a quart can. And there's whatever was benzene or something in there that would give someone quite a kick. And that's the story how he wrote that particular book, but all in one weekend. Wow. Not what we expected to learn on this podcast. That is fascinating. But that did make jobs with Vic Chemical, which is the company in Greensboro, North Carolina were very popular. They literally interviewed on two days at Tufts for one person, knowing they were going to hire one person. They went to 15 schools geographically around the country and had hired somebody at each school for this management training program. And I don't know what they did with all the trainees, what they intended to do with them, but I stayed three years and had great training. And it was widely thought out to be a really good sales training course. That also talk to you about how to drink. Don't do three martini lunches. Do three martinis for supper, but don't do it for lunch. Hold it down to one or two. Very usual custom to have alcohol with a business meal in those days. And you were on the road learning to sell. That was a lot of nights on the road, if I remember correctly, from the book. I think that experience probably was formative in some ways for you. You came back to the Boston area, to Gorton's, to the seafood. To be local. To be local. Back to Boston. My time in VIX, by the way, the first six months with VIX, I was on the road from the first day that I started, which was something like June 2nd or something, until December 23rd, every single night. But I'm also just turned 21. I've got a new car. I've got a seven-day expense account. So that works. It worked really well. It makes travel a little bit easier. And you're saving some money that you're not spending elsewhere. I absolutely, and I did save it. And I think that's so important for young people today, to, especially if they want to go into business for themselves. You don't go into business and people dying to come to you. You want to borrow money. You guys know that. You know all about that. You put some money into it. You've got some personal cash that you put in. You can get an awful lot of leverage out of that. And if you don't, you're going to have a partner right from day one. Everything is the partners. It's just a total mishmash. But I knew that I needed money. Whatever I was going to do, I didn't know. Maybe I'd stay in Commerce America somewhere, but indeed I decided it was time to 
go back to Boston. I got recruited from to work at Gorton's. Gorton's of Gloucester, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're thinking of the fisherman in the hat. We all know it. Yeah. yeah. G-L-O-U-C-E-S-T-E-R. Gloucester. Yeah, Gloucester. Gloucester. Yeah. And I had a great time up there. So you worked at Gorton's in a sales capacity. We've read a lot about the fruit punch era. You're building a business there. Talk about margin. You had a great business, and that ultimately led to your entree into commercial real estate. So we'd love to hear a bit about that investment in the fruit punch business, how it grew, and then how it evolved into the early days of the Cummings portfolio that we know. One of the big things that's very distinct about Cummings properties, we don't buy buildings, clean them up, and flip them. We don't even buy them, fall in love with them, get a divorce, and flip them. The very first building that I had on Henshaw Street, down behind what used to be Friendly's at Montvale Avenue, we still have it. It's still very actively leased. And we've got a couple more down there, three more, I guess. And it was always a question of buying property, either building on it or fixing it up, leasing it. Once it was leased, we'd take out a mortgage. Never had a construction loan. Construction loans take so much time to negotiate and then to deal with them afterwards, getting approval from every time they wanted another, as I understand the problem anyway, you'd want another disbursement. You prove that if you put the money in that you're entitled to the next disbursement. It's like going from payday to payday. We'd do it the other way. We'd fix it up and then we'd get a loan from whatever savings bank had the best rate. The seed capital for this move into commercial real estate You bought the fruit punch business, you grew that business, you eventually sold it, and that gave you some seed capital to do this. But even with that equity available, it's still a unique approach. You're a debt-averse person, legendarily debt-averse, probably goes back to your upbringing and your parents and read a great clip about your mother would send in six extra dollars a month to pay down the mortgage. So this was a theme that you carried to today. And one thing we, is an amazing statistic, we talk about 11 million square feet in your portfolio today, and I believe that's debt-free or pretty close to it. There's no debt on any of that. 110 properties, 11 million square feet. I couldn't tell you how many properties. You can tell you 11 million feet, but the number of properties, how do you count? When does a building cease to be a building? And then you say, well, if it's leased, well, we've got little buildings that are not much bigger than the office that are leased. The number of buildings is up to grabs. I don't know if it's 100, 125, depending on how you count them. 11 million square feet, debt-free is pretty unique. On this planet, it's unique. Sure. It's the wrong thing to do. The very first lesson I'm told you get in business school, if you're taking a course in real estate, is you work with leverage. You get all the money you can get from somebody else, and then you have nothing there. You don't sign for it personally. I signed personally when we did have mortgages on every mortgage that we had from the day one, and we always would get an extra quarter point. That was the last thing I would talk about. What's the lowest rate I can get? We've already invested X number of dollars and there's no other financing on the property. What's the lowest rate we can get? Well, it's going to be 6.5% in those days, 12.5% at one point, interest rate. What did it get up to at the biggest 17.5%? There would always be that additional part for personal guarantee. The worst thing you're supposed to do if you don't know if you're going to pay it or not. But we always knew we'd pay it. And we never had a problem. It's really incredible that you were able to build the portfolio that you were able to without leverage. I think that is a lot of times the catalyst for growth for a lot of investors and developers, but that you were able to do it all equity is incredibly impressive. And at times like this, when rates are continuing to go up and there's floating rate debt and say you lost a tenant at Trade Center 128, then you have an issue on your hands. In times like this, you avoid those challenges. So we commend you on building the portfolio you have with no debt. But going back to the early, early real estate days for Cummings Properties, we read in the Harvard Business School case study, there was this sort of serendipitous moment when a vacant piece of land adjacent to one of your operations came on the market. And But for that property coming to market, Cummings Properties may never have been a real estate company. What were the metrics around that deal and what was that acquisition like? The acquisition that you're referring to would have been at Henshaw Street with a building which is now two to eight Henshaw Street, uh, two to eight, yeah. We already owned 10 Henshaw Street, which used to be a lumber yard, and a junkyard as well, when we bought it. And it was a nice two acre parcel. We had already started to getting a little bit into rental. I 
early on got the taste of using some extra land, surplus land, at 10 Henshaw Street to put up 12 and 14, which is the two-story addition next to where Old Medford was, to 7,500 feet on two floors, and leased that out quite quickly. A dollar and 15 cents a foot was the rate for the first tenant, Eastern Tool Warehouse. Then we leased the upstairs to something from maybe a dollar five a foot because they didn't need any office space, and it was Wakefield Engineering, and they took the upper space. Oh, this is great. Guy next door was selling off his extra land, his land, which he lived around the corner and acquired two acres, which he'd owned for a long time. And he wanted to go to Florida. And he came by and said, would you buy my property? Why not? We put up one building there at number 8 Henshaw Street, two-story building that was 15,000 feet in each floor, four tenants, 7,500 feet each. Then we put another building, reasonable distance away from the first building, a bigger piece, Then we said, well, what's wrong with this piece in the middle? If we build that, we put a front and a back on it. The side walls are already up. The foundation's already there, practically. So the building became 450 feet long or something like that. So we had quite a bit of space then in one building. Started leasing it to people like Philip 66 was one of the original tenants. Xerox was in there. A bunch of good names and a bunch of names you've never heard of. This is kind of good decided that I liked the real estate business when we bought the property, which is directly behind where we're all sitting here now, or behind me anyway, which is now Cummings Park. That was 21 acres, and next to nothing is the purchase price over there. I'm not going to tell you the price because I don't remember it, quite frankly, but it was 25000 an acre or something like that's that. What I, that's what I remember. Great real estate. At that point, decided it was time to sell off Old Medford Foods. I had paid $4,000 to buy Old Medford originally. As a company had been around 100 years before I got there. The landlord, Llewellyn Farnsworth, the last thing I remember him saying to me was before he just moving out, I said, I'm really sorry to lose you as a tenant. Never had the occasion before to take any money out of this business. I never made any money here. Now I've been getting $50 a month rent. That's what we paid for the headquarters for Old Medford. And moved to Old Medford up to Woolburn, which caused me to buy the property for Old Medford Foods. Still not at any point thinking when we bought that property that we would be in the real estate business. But that's when we expanded it and then determined, as you correctly noticed there, Mike, that we put the little addition on there and then said, I think we should be in the real estate business. You sold Old Medford Foods, which we've been calling it the fruit punch business, but you were making and distributing fruit punch, grape juice, orange juice. One great thing, other than the proceeds from that sale, that's also where you met your wife, Joyce. I met Joyce. Joyce and I met in the kitchen of the Mass Iandir Infirmary 57 years ago next month. Congratulations. She's put up with me for a long time. She was a hospital dietitian there. Our first date, the same day that I first talked to her, I go back to the office and I got to do something. I'm, really? I got to get a hold of her. And I called her up and said, there's a party up the street. How about I come back over and go to the party with me? And that was the opening of the John Hancock building. And she came over and I had an invitation to go in such an entrance. And we'd go up and the place was full of tuxedos. And she's there in her whites. Coming from in, work. In her at, coming from whites. work at Mass Ioneer. She still kids me about that. More than kids me. She gives me grief. Well, it was the beginning of a great romance. And I think what you guys have gone on to do together building this business with Joyce supporting you as a teammate, but then the Cummings Foundation, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. It's something that we admire about you and your family. And I think if there's lessons you can learn from this interview or from the book, that marriage is probably at the top of that list. Well, it was certainly the most important thing for me and a big part of my life. There's no question about that. Well, 57 years, you've made a good choice. And Again, congratulations in advance. Before we spend some time on the Cummings Foundation, which is something that we're amazed by, we wanted to talk quickly about milestones for Cummings properties over the years. You've developed some really, really incredible campuses. I think we'd call them campuses, not buildings. One that sticks out is the United Shoe Factory acquisition in Beverly. I think it was over a million square feet. You paid $10 million for it. But walk us through that acquisition and how that really catalyzed the growth of Cummings Properties. That was a property, it's 100 acres, and it had been on the market for a long time, 11 years, I think. And the price had gone down from 89 million to start, and 79, 65, 
$50 million. We never looked at it, never went near it. 35, 25, still hadn't gone up there. And eventually, Jamie McEwen got the call that, come on up this place I've been trying to get you to go see. They're down to $10 million. You've got to get up here. I'll even take an offer of $5 million if you want to give me an offer of $5 million. They won't take it, but I'll submit it. We talked about that for a year after we gave them the initial offer of 500000 That was our starting point, and that's where we bought it. So it was interesting. That was at the same time that the properties in Lowell. Wang Towers? Wang Towers were on the market. And the headline on the Globe one Sunday morning was Wang Towers sold $500,000. Some friends of ours and a Newmark colleague, Lou Alvarado, was the buyer. I tore the page out, put it in a FedEx envelope, sent it down to Black & Decker, the Black & Decker treasurer at the time. Black & Decker company had owned that for a year or two anyway, and we understood they were paying about $45,000 a week to maintain the security team with this largely empty building. There were a few people in there, maybe 15, 20 companies, but 5 or 6% occupied. And they just had to get out and they wanted to get out right then. We couldn't do it quite like that. It took a year, all cash again. And nobody would give you a mortgage on it in those days. A dirty property, it had oil on it. There's all kinds of oil underground from their operations. I say all kinds of it, I don't know how many tons of oil, but it was spread all over in different locations. This kind of oil here and some other kind of oil somewhere else. Nothing dangerous, but still, it's contaminated, it was dirty. And banks were scared to death of anything like that. Now they make allowances, I guess. At that time, that's why the property stayed around. Even at a low basis, you were taking a lot of risk there with the environmental piece. Yeah, I will tell you that we are in court with them still, still, legally. The matter behind the case is ongoing reports that are still necessary to EPA. We have an exemption with the state. We got an agreement not to sue, I guess. And this became Cumming Center Beverly. When you got control of the property, it's a serious campus. What was the vision? Or did you say, hey, this is a good value. We're going to figure it out as we go. Figure it out. And that's been a theme of the company and your career. Think about how you started. You never built a building before and you started, you did an addition, then you bought some land and you started building. That opportunity was in front of every real estate investor that was up in this part of the market in the Northeast saw that, but you said, okay, now it's at a good value. We can absorb some of this risk and we can make this something special. And now I wouldn't even want to try to guess how many people are working on that campus now. It's just an incredible center of commerce. I'll tell you, it's about 6,200 now. The jobs that are there, there's so many, so many high-tech jobs. And I'm talking about administrative workers on high-tech jobs. I'm not talking about the guys with the PhDs, and there's an awful lot of those. But the people who are making those companies operate, they make very, very good money. Well, you know that. Our own people, we've got 60 or 70 Cummings Properties people up there, and they average $75,000, $80,000 a year positions for tradespeople. And it's not just the jobs that have come along in the last year or two when rates took the big jump. It's just a good team of people there, and people like to work there. We try to make it a friendly place, a place that people say hello to you when you come in in the morning, and our staff love getting compliments back and love being recognized for what they do. They care about what they do. 6,200 jobs, that's incredible, and really changed that part of the state from an employment standpoint. I mean, if you go up 128, that is the center of gravity for employment as you're heading north. And before that, those folks were driving probably to southern New Hampshire, Lowell, and into the city. So really, it filled a gap for places for companies to do business in the north part of the state. Think what the traffic would be right. coming out of Beverly in the morning more cars. if we didn't have all that concentration of jobs up there. I think it's been a hallmark of what you've built. If you look at this portfolio, almost all these properties weren't office or flex buildings before you controlled them. And I think if you just look at from an economic development standpoint, which I know that this has been a theme for you is investing in properties and you improve the local community, but you also are facilitating the creation of jobs, which that is a legacy which can't be quantified. That's been something you've been doing. And you look at these massive campuses and undertakings that you've created. It has changed the economic development path of those communities in a major way. And because you're not financing these assets typically, 
because you're not planning to sell them, you're able to house small companies, big companies, companies with little credit, short-term leases. You're famous for the one or two-page lease in the market, which has been one of your trademarks. But I think not being hamstrung by the financing markets and by an exit, by a sale, allows you to do a lot of things like that and really grow employment. So it's very, very impressive. The lease is plain English, and it's a little misleading to say one page because it's a double page, one on top of the other, and printed small print on both sides. So there's a lot on, and there's 36 different paragraphs. But that's all you need. You don't need to have something that is big leases, leases from other companies that are 80, 90, 100 pages sometimes, maybe longer. I don't know. And it's simple. It takes up so much less space in the file drawer too, right? You've had your approach and your way of doing things, which no one could argue that this has certainly worked. From our standpoint, we spend our time in the investment sales capital market side of the business. We've never sold a property, obviously, for Cummings Properties. And the stuff that we do sell, like you said, you're generally a value-oriented investor. So you're usually not bidding on that. That's why it's very special for us to be in this office to start with. We're excited to be here. But I think when you look at what you've been able to cultivate from a tenant standpoint, You've allowed these tenants to grow. You've had hundreds of tenants who have started out with two to four or six people and have grown to be 100 plus and gone on to great things as companies. But that simplicity that you sort of deliver has allowed those tenants to move in to Cummings Properties and to grow in your portfolio. And it's almost like some of these REITs that we do a lot of work with where portfolio tenants are important to them. They'd like to get someone when they're starting out, allow them a path to grow. And you guys have done that with great success. But the ripple effect to those families that work there and the people that create value in those companies, that's immeasurable. Our specialty really has been bring in small firms and help them to grow. We try to do that very seamlessly and it's worked for us extraordinarily well. At what point did you say, hey, we can be a 5 million square foot, 7 million square foot, 10 million square foot, 11 million square foot portfolio? When did that happen? And you've scaled consistently You've scaled up your staff here and your team, and we want to talk a little bit about just the culture and the people you have working for you, because I don't know that there's another place where people spend so much time in their career, generally get great people, and you teach them and you allow them to grow. And I think the average tenure is 11 years on your employees, 350 plus employees. It's pretty incredible. And a couple that are 40 plusers, yourself included. Well, I guess so there. We've actually got two that are coming up toward 50. What's been the secret there? Was that something you focused on? There's a great story that I love about when you come here and interview, if you're not someone I would feel comfortable giving a copy of the key to my house, then you're not a fit. That litmus test is really cool. Everybody who has a master key has a key to my house. That's just in case if you make a bad decision sometime, at least I'm in there with whoever might get hurt by our bad decision. That's just the way it's always been and still is today. My phone number is still in the book. It's always been in the phone book, if you can have a phone book anymore. But my number at home was always there. And it's there because my phone isn't shut off today. I don't think, I guess somebody did call forward it. I wouldn't have thought to do it because I don't get calls. Other people were running this place today. I get involved in consulting. I get involved in strategizing. Our first Boston project might be coming up. I can't tell you. You'll likely hear something within the next month, either it's happening or not happening. We hope to see it. Very unique, but that's all I can say It sounds about like it. unique is par for the course looking at the projects that you've undertaken over sure. the past few decades. So we'll be excited to hear that. And Boston, I'm sure, will welcome. Can we talk a little bit about succession? You'd made reference there to, and we talked about it in the beginning, you're the founder of Cummings Properties, but you're not the chairman, you're not the CEO, you're not the president. And it's been some time since you've held those roles. It's pretty unique for a family-owned business to have such clear succession planning in place, but it's been something you focused on early on and you've had... A number of tremendous people have helped you in that regard. Absolute, sure. And even across the board, as far as the company is concerned, the reason people come here and stay is because they like the people they're with. I hear this constantly. Even when somebody's going, leaving to go a better opportunity and they're all places to go, there's only so many people we can bring up and somebody is too qualified to stay here any longer. That happens. But if somebody is going, what we hear is, I just hate leaving the people here. And they don't exclude me, but they're not talking about me. They're talking about everybody else. They like the people they come to work with every day. And that's what keeps people around. They like the opportunities. They know that the company has an opportunity to do something good or to do a good deal, either one. Do something good for the community or do something in the community. If there's a good opportunity there, we're going to probably take advantage of it. 
we don't think of being a an opportunist as a bad word. Some people like to tell you that at a public, oh, you're just a bunch of opportunists or something like that. And we're proud of that word. It's something that has been the style of the company right from the start and to make quick decisions. And you talk about the senior management. There's no restrictions on what Eric Anderson and or Dennis Clark as president and chairman, respectively, can't do without talking to me if there's a reason for it. They're going to tell me if I'm there, but if I'm away on vacation or whatever, they're authorized to do anything, and I can be away for two weeks and not talk to anybody. I wouldn't be typically, but I have been on occasion in Africa or somewhere, and we'll still go ahead. Things just work that way. And the fact that people have the people like those two, especially the senior people and the people under them, have the authority to do what needs to be done right then on their own. If they're senior managers, they're authorized to do what needs to happen. And the respect that they get and the confidence that I probably show in making those arrangements make people recognize that they really are valued to what they do, not just filling a job. Well, it goes back to culture and the people that you put around you and to have two great folks like those two running the company on a day-to-day basis. We know you sleep well at night because they're great and the folks under them are great. We have all the respect in the world for them. So we applaud you for putting together such a great management team. And on that note of transitioning control of the company on a day-to-day basis on the real estate side, and you mentioned doing good, we'd love to start getting into the Cummings Charitable Foundation and what you and your wife spend most of your time on these days. I know we have some high-level stats on the foundation, and Mike, maybe you run us yeah. through those, but we'd love to spend some time talking about the foundation because it's changing the world, literally. A theme we go back to on these interviews is you learn, you earn, and you return. And you and Joyce clearly made a decision. We're going to get to this, but you signed the Giving Pledge, which was really spearheaded by Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett. But even before that, you had made a family decision that the great majority of your wealth was going to be given away. and. When you signed the giving pledge, that actually brought publicity to it. So we'd like to hear about that process. But we're talking billions of dollars here for our listeners to get some context, just a a staggering level of generosity, something we admire beyond description. But what point in your life did that become a priority? We founded Cummings Foundation in 1986. And before that time, we had determined that our kids had more than they needed already. And they knew they had more than they needed or more than they wanted even. And I will tell you that all four of our great kids have donated significant funds back to the foundation. They just didn't want the responsibility of it, didn't need it, didn't want their kids to have extra money, quote unquote. And it is certainly one of my regrets in life that none of them wanted to be in the business. And that happens. More important, they be where they want to be and doing what they're called to do. And to be at the same time, I can be so proud of them for their attitude about what they do on their own, philanthropically and charitably. And it's the type of thing that it made it very easy for me to continue to work once we determined that I wasn't doing it to put more money in a box somewhere. What's more gratifying as a parent than yours and your wife's values being instilled in your children and them deciding, hey, we have extra funds, we're going to do the right thing, we're going to do good with this money, we don't need this money. As a new parent, and Mike is the father of three, it's something we hope to instill in our kids, and we know you're proud, you should be very proud that they've made that decision as well. The approach, you've started that foundation now many years ago. You've contributed assets over time that, again, are valued in the billions of dollars. You've given away through the Cummings Foundation, over $500 million to a lot of worthy causes, over $30 million a year at a very consistent clip and more. That transition to focusing on your philanthropy, what were the moments that sort of led to that? It was always part of your sort of fundamental belief in how to approach maybe the second half of your life. But the Giving Pledge, for example, how did that come to be? And when you signed the Giving Pledge, it publicly stated the Cummings family, this is a billionaire family. And until then, you had been very low profile, not low profile in your giving because you're a popular person to call for a lot of charities. But I don't think people had quite wrapped their no, head it was, around it was the empire we, here. Anything we did was very much very private. And the editor of the Globe, whatever editor it was that called me inquiring about the story when they got it from Seattle, I guess, wherever it was was what are the people in your neighborhood going to say when I write a story and publish this story and it was going to be above the fold on the front page of the Globe two days later. 
and talking about the giving billionaire next door. What are they going to say? <laughs> that was her question. Yeah. And we agreed that I didn't need to answer that. But that was how she put it. And she had ended up wanting corroboration for what we were doing and called the Boston Foundation, whoever was over there at the time. And they didn't know. I never heard of us. Just interesting the way it worked. And it was almost like, well, maybe it was one of these phony stories that I get this. They got as far as me. What's wrong? How did it all come to be? And I think you were the first family in Massachusetts to sign the Giving Pledge. And the Giving Pledge, so our listeners know, and a lot of them will have read about it and understand it, it's, I think it's a commitment to giving away at least 50% of your personal wealth. We know from reading that you've gone beyond that, but this is a pledge founded by Bill and Melinda Gates with Warren Buffett. Did they approach you? Did they call you? How does that transaction happen? That's fascinating to us. Our joining the Giving Pledge came with a friend that said you should be in the Giving Pledge and do you want Warren to call you? And I said, no, Warren's got enough to do without calling me. I've talked to him many times since that time, but it didn't involve him calling or anything dramatic like that. It was very easy to do what we needed to do there because we were already doing it. It didn't take any, because of the Giving Pledge, we're going to do things differently. So it wasn't a story to you. This is just something that they picked up for you. This was just business as usual, doing good with the wealth that you had created. Maybe having an opportunity to see how the other side of the world did things. And we got to the organization's first annual meeting and looked around and saw the people in the room with us and all names on the bold print pages of the business pages, the names you'd see there. Gee, do we belong here? We got to be the poorest people in the room. That hadn't happened in a long time. There's such a large number, such a high percentage of people in that group really are very concerned about giving and giving intelligently. And most of them, most of us all, think we could do a better job of it probably than the government would do with spending our money appropriately. And I strongly believe that. And it is the purpose of the annual meeting, the principal purpose is to share ideas share ideas on philanthropy and what works. And you get some great ideas in some other parts of the country and the world now. The friends that we have, the Joyce and I think of as our friends, they're our friends that, just like you, Mike, you've got three kids that are probably in school by now. The people you meet at PTA or the Cub Scouts or the Jamboree or whatever are the friends you're going to have the rest of your life. You're going to find that as well, Tom. We have associations with lots of other people now through the Giving Pledge, but it's a different thing altogether. The friends of the people we've met together for the most part and friends that we had before we knew each other, two different groups. And then there's people we know through the Giving Pledge. It's there. Uh, We greatly respect what the organization does. People think, oh, maybe there's a secret handshake somewhere or anything like that that goes on. I've never witnessed, and we've been to probably nine of the 11 meetings or 10 of the 12 meetings that have taken place since we've been there. There's never been a vote taken about anything. There's no dues. There's no initiation fee. The organization is run by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and it's part of what they do to try to encourage philanthropy. The real idea behind it is if people see the effects of giving and it's okay to give, they're more likely to do it. The number of times you'd be familiar, I'm sure, with a recent grant we made with former Benjamin Franklin Institute Mm -hmm. of Technology. That was announced, and there were, within two months after that, I'm not going to tell you any names, but two names that you would know well in Boston, gave seven-digit gifts within two months after we did that. It was taken as a sign that they must be okay. Cummings is doing that. Yeah, you give it credibility. Yeah, but that's how we all behave. We see things like that. And organizations that we'll make a gift to generally anyway, we ask them, go ahead and put it on the webpage. And it goes on almost like a good housekeeping seal. And they so frequently tell us that they've gotten unexplained gifts immediately after that. That feels so good. Well, I think that the compounding effect, you contribute this capital and you make the decision that there's no shortage of places for this money to go. You make the decision and endorse this group and say, hey, we've looked into it. They're doing a good job of what they're doing. They need some more support. And then others follow. And that contagion effect of philanthropy is a great thing. And Tommy and I are very involved as board members of the Corey Griffin Foundation, who Corey Griffin, the way we describe him, he reminds us a lot of Jamie, who you lost in your life. We contribute a lot of our time and effort into that legacy. But what it really is, is 
partnering with organizations doing a great job helping whoever they're helping, whether it's kids or adults in the community through healthcare, academia. It's something that's a great gift. You had a few transformative moments or trips, and we had read about the trip to Israel. You're a Roman Catholic. I think that that trip to Israel, I think you had met a rabbi over there who sort of opened your eyes to some things and stuff around the world. And you got very involved with Dr. Paul Farmer, who's an icon, of course. So what were those experiences like, your philanthropic journey? There's no question that our trip to Israel changed our attitudes on a lot of things, and more in terms of the immediacy and the need to do more. We thought for a while and actually tried for about a year to, as a result of that, to try to work out a program that we could sponsor a program, something like Birthright, that would bring young Jewish boys and girls to Israel, and usually in their senior year in high school, I think, most of the time, and to do it for non-Jews, because there was so much there and so much to be learned. And it turned out we couldn't do it. We met with Rockefeller Foundation and people of that ilk, even, and talked about putting a major fund together and thought maybe we could do a whole lot of philanthropy all at one time and follow that model. Well, it just wasn't a place for it. And it wasn't a rabbi we met. It was a former inmate. And we asked him to come to Tufts and talk to, to students there and worked carefully with the rabbi at Tufts at the time and introduced a program to support numbers of about 20 students each year to actually to travel to Rwanda. And again, not having to do so much with the Holocaust as genocide in general, and to go to Rwanda and then set up a program and endowed it with a million dollars there. We thought we would do that with a whole bunch of different schools. We did it at Salem State University, and there's a program at Salem State that does the same thing. There's a museum of Jewish antiquities of some sort that we financed it going up to Salem as well and thought we might get into that area and it wasn't going to work though. We were just out of our element and nobody was anything but lovely and gracious with us, but we couldn't find a way to do something. That didn't happen. And did spend a year trying to put that together, thinking it could happen as a result of that specific trip and particularly to Yad Vashem. No trip to Israel should be without a trip to Yad Vashem Museum. Locally, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Not quite the same, but wonderful experience that people should, any way could take advantage of that to get there is time very, very well spent. That whole experience was certainly was earth-changing for us. Paul Farmer, when did you get to know Paul Farmer and his efforts? And obviously, he was an incredible person. I think of Paul as nobody I've ever met that was a better person ever in terms of family included, nobody any better, you know, in terms of what they do in the world and what they did in this world to help and do it in a meaningful way that made such a difference to literally millions of people. Bill and Melinda Gates affect the lives of millions maybe of people, but Paul as an individual without a lot of money behind him at all did so much. Paul Farmer grew up in a school bus at one point. Several siblings lived in a school bus in Alabama and that was their home. He went from there to Duke as class president in high school. You live in the school bus and you're the class president. Gone too soon. Changed the world and certainly changed a lot of things abroad and domestically and sorely missed by many, including you. But domestically, Bill, you've championed a lot of great causes here. $80 million to the Tufts School Medicine, $12.5 million to Endicott College, the Franklin Cummings Institute, another $11 million to Tufts as well. A laundry list of just huge gifts. And that's in addition to the $30 million or so that you put out annually to dozens upon dozens upon dozens of organizations, smaller organizations in Boston. And one thing we'd be curious to hear is how do you filter those applicants or groups who are looking for help for funds? How do you, Thank you for asking funnel that, that down Thank to the you right for selection? Asking that question. That's a great one. And the answer is we've got 150 or 60 or maybe 170 volunteers now. The volunteers do more than half of all new grants. They decide where the money is going for more than half of all the new organizations that come in. And the volunteers include college presidents. They include retired letter carriers, firefighters, mayors, lots of bank-type people, lots of academics of all sorts, and the retired ones are the ones that really have the time to give. And we do site visits. 
for all of the grant recipients, there's more than a thousand of them, the volunteers get paid. Now they're up to $5,000 per site visit. They get then to spend that money as they see fit without saying boo to us. They just tell us where to send the checks. What a great program. Democratizing philanthropy. And that's what we're trying to do that really is different. It's a different level. We talked about major gifts, donations, begetting other donations from other major philanthropists. This is at a different level and a different form, but just as important where you've been known for this approach of empowering others, maybe who don't have the financial needs that your family has, but that are affiliated or connected to your organization, whether it's Cummings Properties or volunteer basis. And I know there's a lot of overlap there, but then you empower these folks to go out and give and think oftentimes with their families, hey, who needs help and where should this go and where's it going to be used? And we strongly encourage them when they're going on a site visit to bring a family member if they want to do that. They don't get any more votes. Our site visits are done with two volunteers each time. They can be two volunteers and we'll usually pair them up or they'll pair themselves up along with the spouse or significant other and they'll go out and do a site visit. And the organizations where they go are so appreciative of the fact that somebody wants to come and talk to them and learn more about it. They're unduly appreciative. And the compounding continues when that volunteer and their friend, their family member who join, going forward, they are probably moved by those organizations. And independently, they and their families will be affiliated with them and will donate and will get behind those causes. So it even further compounds beyond the Cummings Foundation into this great network of giving. It's something with the Corey Griffin Foundation, which we mentioned earlier, that we're particularly proud of is how we've enabled and empowered a very young new generation of philanthropists in the city. We really pride ourselves on building what we call an emerging leaders council, but these are young people who need to be exposed to philanthropy and understand it the way that you and your wife have done. That's incredibly important and it leads to that compounding effect. And they get to work with each other. We had a Zoom meeting on today and unfortunately it oversubscribed and we were expecting a couple of dozen, maybe 50 people would call in on grant writing just coaching people on it. And it topped out of more than 100. And we set up to take 100 calls, not thinking we would have any more than that. Just grant writing and just how to do it effectively, not just to hear. Our grant writing is pretty easy, but a lot of organizations take a lot more effort. And the other thing we're doing is specifically signing up for coaching sessions, where some of our more experienced volunteers will coach them directly with one foundation at a time and get the team of the foundation to talk with them and spend a couple of hours on a call. And they're always followed up by a second call so that they really have a chance to really teach something. And so many of these people are teachers. And we get a lot of volunteers, by the way, who are grant winners. We just don't know. Trace and Bill and most of our friends are from rich old people in Winchester. And how many people do we know of color in the city who know what's going on and who know where the effective organizations are. But if we recruit them to work as volunteers, they bring all that in. We're just now this year going to Norfolk County for the first time. Before that, it's always been local, three Essex, Suffolk, and Middlesex. And so we're going to the cities or towns in Norfolk that have bought Suffolk County. We're Plymouth County guys, so we're going to keep trying to get you down there further and further south. I think that the realization or sort of that transition for your family and for the foundation of being private and low-key for many years to realizing that although it may have been uncomfortable in the beginning because you're just by nature a humble, low-key person and low-key family, and we know from our friends in Winchester that you would never know the resources that you have by the way you live. But now by being so public about this, by involving so many people, it does have that effect, which kind of amplifies your giving in so many ways, which is invaluable, something that is totally admirable. And it's become a great legacy for you and Joyce. So if we take a step back, you're not a political person. We know that. And you've sort of stay out of that fray. You've seen a lot over the years. You've seen many different economic cycles. We're in the real estate business. This is an interview series with generally folks that are in the real estate industry. What do you think of where we are today from an economic standpoint and as a country? You know, sir, how does this feel? You've seen a couple ups and downs. Well, certainly. And I think Joyce and I are both as afraid as most of our friends are with the national conditions right now. And it's something that you wonder how it got that way. I mean, it's so reminiscent. Some of the thinking that's going on is so reminiscent of what happened in Nazi Germany in the early 30s and the late 30s even. Everything was all just fell apart. There's so many people that are being hurt in this country right now. Boston is in 
an extraordinarily good place in terms of the organizations. I mean, we're one of five, at least, major groups trying to do things in Boston. Bar Foundation certainly does a lot, and, and obviously the Boston Foundation, and they're just a grand. And there's just so many groups doing good things in the city, and your organization training, and so conscious of wanting to bring more people into the fold and have them understand what the ins and outs of philanthropy, and that makes a difference. We've all seen the stories in local business magazines and the Globe stories on crime rates in Boston going in the right direction, whereas other comparable cities, all of them are going the opposite way. And the good things that so many people are doing in the city right now are making such a huge difference. I think of Jack Connors. I think of, yeah, you're familiar yeah. with this, oh, this yeah. camp? You've been out there? We've, yeah, we've, we've been lucky to spend there. some time out there. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, an amazing place. Like place. And his program of trying to lend financial support to the families of his campers during the off-season just to show that they care. And, and things like that, yeah. innovative programs, they do so much. He's right up there with you on the Mount Rushmore of philanthropists in this region. I'm proud to be associated with Jack anyway. You mentioned Granite, Rob Hale, who we know well. He did something great that what you mentioned earlier reminded me of one of his initiatives. I think he gave everybody who graduated from Quincy College $1,000 and said, 500 is for you, and 500 is for you to go do something good with. Go give it back. And how many other places has he done it with since? He's done it at, I think, UMass. He's done it at Quincy College. And high schools as well. You're on to something. You two have a good formula there. Empower people to give. Let them know what it feels like to give because they'll be givers for life. So, so Bill, I think we know what you spend most of your spare time on because you have a full plate. The endeavor of giving away money is hands-on. It's not like you got to step back from Cummings Properties and then just relax. What do you do outside of your business pursuits and the foundation? Where do you spend your time and what do you enjoy doing? Fortunately, our four of our grandchildren are with their parents, the two sets of parents. Instead of being in California or in New York, they decided they wanted to be together in New Rochelle, New York. So that helps a lot, and we've got another one locally. Certainly, grandchildren are something we think about an awful lot. We both played golf for a long time, and I had the opportunity to play golf with a lot of good players when I was a very bad player. Had lots of good memories on the golf course, lots of friends from playing golf. I ride my bike a lot. Most mornings, I'll be on the bike at 5.30 and ride for 45 minutes or an hour, that type of thing, because we've got to get exercise, don't we? For our listeners, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Bill was born in 1937, but he doesn't look it, so the biking is working. You're doing something right there. What are you reading, Bill? What's on your nightstand besides starting small? What books would you recommend? What are you reading right now? The book that's on there most recently is Rough Sleepers, the story of, I'm sure you know, of very underprivileged people who that sleep is places like Cass and Mass and Cass and places of that nature. My favorite book is probably Ben Franklin's autobiography, his unfinished autobiography with a big gap in the middle of it. I found that a very inspiring book. Somebody did a biography on Warren Buffett back in 96, which is a particularly good book for anyone interested in business, particularly if they're interested in financial markets. It makes it all sound like anybody could do it. They have a good way of delivering complicated things in a simple way. What's Warren Buffett like? You've got to know him through the Giving Pledge. Well, the grandfather next door. Very down-to-earth, smart as a whip, obviously, but no pretext, no pretense. My favorite in that little group is Melinda, and I've forgotten the name of her book right now, but her recent book deals so much with the children of the world and the need for help for children, particularly through birth control. Why are we refusing birth control and then tolerating abortions also in all sorts of crazy manner, childhood deaths. Wouldn't birth control be better than the carnage that follows without it, that type of thing? You mentioned I'm Roman Catholic, and I am, and I consider myself a valid Roman Catholic, but I try to focus some attention on that every once in a while. I think this should have a lot more attention than it's getting, but she does a marvelous job and with her presentation, you know that she's got unlimited resources to get the information and present it accurately. And as long as you trust her, and I do implicitly, she's great. What an incredible group of people to get to know and spend time with. And it's fascinating to hear those stories and to hear what they're like. I think Warren's the Oracle of Omaha. We're going to call you the Oracle of Winchester here. So that'll be our nickname for you going forward. I think we've used an hour and a half of your time. So we want to wrap it up. Interesting to see how you squeeze this into an hour. Bill, when we came up with the idea for this interview series, it was about capturing and recording great real estate stories. 
you're at the top of the list of the folks that we had hoped to get to spend some time with. And we often say, even if we didn't post this and no one else heard it, it's been a privilege to get to sit in your office here. And you've been very gracious having us in and telling us your story. And the book is something that everyone should have. We have a lot of students and young professionals that listen to this podcast. If anyone can't buy the book today, wants a copy of the book, just reach out to Tom and I, we will get you a copy because I think it's something that is a great read. You can read it several times because you're very open about your life story and when different things became important to you. The impact you're having on the world goes beyond the dollars that you've been investing with these different programs. So we admire it. We feel fortunate to spend some time with you and this has been a real treat. Thank you for the plug on the book. I will tell you though that it's available used on Amazon and electronically for four bucks, I think it is, and used in paper copy for four ninety-five or something, postage paid. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. Bill, thank you so much. Starting small and making it big. We really appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.